this is Madeline Smith, and you are listening to Actually Interesting History. We make history fun, accessible, and interesting by sharing the human story behind the dates we learned about in history class. As Rudyard Kipling said, if history was taught in the form of stories, it would never be forgotten. Now on with the show. Hello, friends. I am back with a fully recovered voice, I think, <laughs> after um, my brief loss because I had COVID. I actually wrote down the symptoms that I was having and what was going on because even though it doesn't seem like it right now, all of this someday will be a distant memory. And I'm sure at that point, historians would love to have first-hand accounts of what's going on. So that was... <laughs> my silver lining throughout all of this it was like yeah i get to contribute to history uh it's kind of like how when i was working as a bioarchaeologist my colleagues and i would discuss you know how we wanted to be buried uplifting topics like that you know normal stuff and one of my friends actually said that she wanted to be buried painted completely gold holding her iphone and a machete just to really confuse a future bioarchaeologist someday which that wasn't the nicest of her, but funny nonetheless. Um, there's no point to that story other than it makes me happy, but I wanted to welcome you back to Actually Interesting History. And in case you missed it the last month or so, we are currently covering Maria Teresa. Uh, we left off on quite a cliffhanger, so I'm going to give you a brief summary of what we've covered so far, and then we're going to jump right back in. After Maria Theresa's father died, she inherited the hereditary titles Archduchess of Austria, Queen of Hungary, and Queen of Croatia. However, she did not automatically control Bohemia or the throne of the Holy Roman Empire that had been held by her family for a very long time. In 1741, Charles Albert, the Elector of Bavaria, was declared sovereign of Bohemia. Shortly after that, he was elected Holy Roman Emperor unanimously and he was the only Habsburg to be elected to the position since the only non-Habsburg sorry to be elected to the position since 1440. Basically everything was going to hell in a handbasket and how the heck was Maria Theresa going to get this train back on track? So first let's meet Charles Albert you know this guy that had taken uh taken her her rightful place as she thought from her shall we? So Charles Albert, a.k.a. Charles VII, Holy Roman Emperor, um, <laughs> imagine that being on your business card, was a member of the House of Wittelsbach. It's just a really fun word. And he was, however, related to the Habsburgs by both blood, hemophilia, and marriage. Uh, how by marriage, you may ask? Well, you know, um, one of... so. If I'm Maria Theresa, my dad, Charles VI, you know those nieces that were carried into my baptism after me because my dad was like, they are not as important? Well, this guy, Charles Albert, had married one of those nieces. So, oops. Uh, <laughs> that's not great. So, he does kind of have some tie here because that niece was also the daughter of a Holy Roman Emperor. So, okay. Charles had inherited the Dukedom of Bavaria from his father, which made him uh, one of the electors of the Holy Roman Emperor, 
position. Because remember, we elect them. There's certain people who have the right to elect the Holy Roman Emperor. Well, because of his father, he inherited one of these spots. After seeing how everyone was not super down with the whole letting Maria Theresa and her husband Stephen be in charge thing, Charles saw an opportunity and he took it. France supported him and provided him with military aid in order to invade Austria. So Charles invaded Upper Austria in 1741 and planned on conquering Vienna. However, uh, his allied French troops were redirected to Bohemia instead, and Prague was conquered in November of 1741. So Charles was crowned King of Bohemia in Prague on the 19th of December, 1741. And then we catch back up to where we were in January of 1742 when Charles was unanimously elected Holy Roman Emperor. We shift back to Maria Theresa, who was super not pleased with the way all of this was working out. And as William Congrave so elegantly phrased it, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned or not elected Holy Roman Emperor. So, Maria Theresa insisted on a winter campaign, and the same day that Charles Albert was crowned Holy Roman Emperor, Maria Theresa's troops captured Munich, Charles Albert's capital, which took everyone by surprise. Because Maria Theresa is like, winter be damned. You're going. You're gonna go. I, I don't care that it's snowing outside. This, this cannot happen. I also just realized that I cursed, but I think it's for dramatic effect, so I'm going to leave it in and maybe I'll just mark this episode <laughs> explicit. Anyways, so not long after the coronation, most of Charles Albert's territories were overrun by Maria Theresa's forces, including Bavaria, his ancestral inheritance, which, ouch, that sucks. And Charles Albert fled to Munich with his metaphorical tail between his legs. Um, Charles Albert was actually mocked pretty viciously during his life. Um, a popular Latin phrase, which I have the Latin written here, but I can't speak Latin, so I'm just going to read you what it means in English. Charles Albert was said to be both emperor and nothing, a, world, a word play on one of Caesar's famous Latin quotes, which was either emperor or nothing because he didn't even have control of Bavaria, his hometown. Side note, Caesar was such a G, and we will definitely cover him at some point, but that's an epic quote and also a major epic burn. So you might be wondering, things seemed pretty hopeless at the end of the last episode. How the heck did Maria Theresa pull this off? Well, uh, do you remember Prussia and that guy, aka that evil man that we don't really like very much, Frederick? Well, Maria Theresa saw the writing on the wall, and she signed a treaty with Prussia over Silesia, which freed up her troops and her attention to handle the Charles Albert problem. There's actually um, a letter that the Prussian ambassador wrote to Frederick, which I'm going to read you an excerpt from now. She has, as you well know, a terrible hatred for France, with which nation it is most difficult for her to keep on good terms. But she controls this passion except when she thinks to her advantage to display it. She detests your majesty, but acknowledges your ability. She cannot forget the loss of Silesia, nor her grief over the soldiers she lost in wars with you. What this quote is demonstrating and what Maria Theresa was able to do here was basically let go of 
her human emotions of being angry and wanting revenge and just say, you know what, I have bigger fish to fry, I have to let this go, except for at times when it would have been to her advantage to let her human emotions show, which I think is really awesome and shows that she definitely was capable of ruling at this time, which incredible. I don't know if I would have had that self-control to be completely honest with you. I probably would have just been crying in a corner. So anyways, the French troops stationed in support of Charles Albert fled Bohemia in the winter of the same year. We we're still in 1742. In the following spring, Maria Theresa had herself crowned Queen of Bohemia in a cathedral there. Uh, unfortunately for Charles Albert, he died in January of 1745, very much the emperor of nothing. After the death of Charles Albert, Maria Theresa's husband, Francis Stephen, was elected Holy Roman Emperor on the 13th of September in 1747. So, so basically, Maria Theresa was elected emperor in <laughs> 1747. I'm sorry, 1745. Um... For three more years, fighting continued on various fronts, but the core Habsburg domains of Austria, Hungary, and Bohemia remained in Maria Theresa's control. There was a treaty signed that concluded the eight-year conflict, which recognized Prussia's possession of Silesia, which, that's still kind of a bummer, and Maria Theresa ceded the Duchy of Parma to Philip of Spain. France had successfully conquered the Austrian Netherlands, but... Louis XV, wishing to prevent uh, future wars with Austria, returned this area to Maria Theresa as well. So finally, we have our kingdom, and it's basically all set in 1748. However, there cannot be peace for long. Less than 10 years after Maria Theresa had consolidated her kingdom, that evil man, a.k.a. Frederick of Prussia, who still had Silesia, by the way, had decided, mm, actually, Saxony looks cool too. I want that. Uh, Frederick of Prussia got the British on his side with the treaty, so Maria Theresa sent an ambassador to the French court with the hopes of evening the playing field. There were two treaties of Versailles signed, through which Louis XV promised to provide military support and money to Maria Theresa with the hope of stopping Frederick from throwing off the power balance in Europe. The overall outcome of all of this without getting too bogged down with war, which was why my side was there because <laughs> it was exhausting researching this, is although Silesia remained under the control of Prussia, a new balance of power was created in Europe. The Austrian position was strengthened by it thanks to the alliance with the Bourbons, which is the French ruling family, which had branches of the family not just in France but in Madrid, Parma, and Naples. Maria Theresa herself decided to focus on domestic reforms and, infrain, and refrain from undertaking further military operations after the conclusion of the Seven Years' War. So now that we're done covering war... <laughs> Let's jump back a little and talk more about Maria Theresa, the person. So her contemporaries described her as a very beautiful woman, especially when she was young. She had a round face, slightly reddish blonde hair. She was lively, 
and vivid and had these bright blue eyes and she was upbeat and this is how a Prussian emissary at the Vienna court had described her. Uh, Maria Theresa and her husband Stephen ended up having 16 children, many of whom actually survived to adulthood, which was quite rare at this time. And the first child was born within a year of her marriage, a little girl who did not live past the age of three. Her eldest surviving child, Maria Anna, was born in 1738, and she was the heiress presumptive until her brother was born. However, Maria Anna was in pretty ill health for most of her life, and she was described as having some type of physical disability. And I was looking into this, and basically it seems like she had pneumonia. And because of this, because of either this happening to her pretty young or lying in bed or whatever else, she kind of had a hunchback and trouble breathing for the rest of her life. She ultimately ended up joining an abbey and living pretty much separately from her family. So, no eldest child but she doesn't stay important for long because not long after her brother is born there was another female child who was born and died but then in 1741 right in the middle of getting all her lands back in those battles by the way her heir joseph he became joseph ii was born maria Teresa had prayed to saint joseph hoping for a son and thus she named him after saint joseph which well, I think that's kind of cute. Next, Maria Cristina was born on Maria Teresa's 25th birthday. You know how you aren't supposed to pick your favorite child and it's like not very P PC of uh, parents to say like, oh yeah, 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 little, little Mark, he's my favorite. <laughs> well, Maria Teresa did not care about that rule one bit. Maria Cristina was her favorite and everybody knew it. She, Maria uh, Christina, which it gets so confusing because everybody's first name is Maria, but she went by Mimi, which that's pretty cute. I have an Aunt Mimi, actually. And she was described as pretty and witty, but as she got older, the preferential treatment really started to grind the gears of her brothers and sisters, and she was not treated very nice by her siblings. While Maria Teresa was still fighting to consolidate her throne, Four more children were born that lived to adulthood, two boys and two girls. At the end of that set of wars, she had five more children, and her last child was born during the 17 years war when Maria Teresa was 39. So basically, I did the math. So from 1736, when she got married to the birth of her last child in 1756, so that's 20 years, she was pregnant for 16 years of that. Or if you want to go by months, for 240 months, out of those months, she was pregnant for 144 of them, which just sounds nuts. She was literally always pregnant. Maria Teresa actually said that had she not been almost always pregnant, she would have gone into battle herself during her foreign campaigns, which I think is hilarious and based on the personality that we're seeing. I can totally see it. I think she might have. I also can see her being very annoyed with the whole process of having kids. I feel like by pregnancy number 10, you probably know what's going to happen and you're just like, oh, 
fine. She actually, she was said to have still been working on her papers during the births of her last, like, five children. Because she, she was just like, I don't know. I, I know what's happening by now. <laughs> Which is the most hilarious picture. I know that the last time we talked about Francis Stephen, he was getting kicked out of meetings, but he obviously was around and helped with the whole having 16 children thing. Uh, I think that eventually they settled into a pretty good rhythm, and though Francis Stephen was technically the emperor, he basically was pretty happy to just let Maria Theresa run things for him. Though he had a very good sense for business, and because of this, he actually was given a lot of control over the financial affairs of the kingdom, which he managed extremely well. But he didn't really care for the everyday task of government and pretty much left politics and diplomacy to Maria Theresa. But they seem to have complemented each other very well. However, the one thing, and I, I looked really hard to see if there were any... And, like, anything I could find that kind of described Maria Theresa's feelings towards this, but Francis Stephen was a serial adulterer. And it was pretty open, like, people talked about it, there were let letters written about the fact that, like, oh, hey, he's having an affair with so-and-so. Even though none of them were really confirmed by him, it was kind of this big open secret at the court in Vienna. Um, famously, one of his well-known um, affairs was... Maria Wilhelmina, who was a princess of, oh, I did not look up how to say this word. I'm going to try my best. It's Arsberg. <laughs> I should have looked that up, but it's too late now. We've committed. Who was 30 years younger than him. And to add insult to injury, she had actually first appeared at the imperial court as a maid of honor to the empress in 1755, which... Ouch. And this is also a she showed up literally the year that Maria Theresa was pregnant with her last kid. So Maria Theresa is like 39 at this point. I mean, she's had 16 children. She's not as young as she used to be. And Francis Stephen was just like, mm, no, yeah, I'm just I'm going to have an affair now. Thanks for the 16 kids. Bye. Which, that wasn't great, but it's really hard to tell, again, what Maria Theresa thought about this because she was pretty thorough about burning her letters, even though she wrote to everybody all the time, which we'll get to in a second. Um, this particular affair, though, was remarked upon in the letters and journals of visitors to the court at the time, as well as the elder children of Maria Theresa and Francis Stephen. In 1765, Francis Stephen died on the 18th of August. Despite his infidelity during the later years of their marriage, Maria Theresa was absolutely devastated. Their eldest son now became Joseph II, Holy Roman Emperor. Maria Theresa abandoned wearing nice clothes, she cut her hair short, she painted her rooms black, and she dressed in mourning for the rest of her life. She completely withdrew from court life, public events, and the theater. Throughout her widowhood, she spent the whole of August and the 18th of each month alone in her chamber. She described her state of mind shortly after Francis's death as, I hardly know myself now, for I have become like an animal, with no true life or reasoning power. 
Though her partner had died, Maria Teresa soon had to turn her attentions to marrying off her children. She used her children, um, which this isn't that unique for the time. I think the thing with this family is just the sheer number of children <laughs> whose marriages had to be arranged. And she used her children's marriages as pawns <laughs> in the political game of chess, so to speak. If you watch The Queen's Gambit, then you're all up on your chess references right now. But she... She used her children very much depending on what political situation she was in. Was she friends with France now? She was going to marry them off to France. Was she friends with Parma now? She was going to marry them off to Parma. Whatever it was. And she's not unique in that. And I think the reason that she gets thought of for this a lot is just the fact that she had so many children. Her relationship with her children too, especially after the death of her, her husband becomes very authoritarian very authoritarian to say the least and she was said to have written to her children all at least once a week and believed herself entitled to make criticize make fun of you know whatever it was to any aspect of their lives regardless of how old her children got or how important they became which <laughs> that sounds great that sounds like a great way to run run a family <laughs> Five years before Francis Stevens' death, Maria Theresa had arranged the marriage of her heir and eldest son, Joseph. He was arranged a marriage with a French princess, Isabel, who was technically the princess of Parma, but we're going to count that as France, in October of 1760. Now, this had been made as a bolster to the 1756 defensive pact between France and Austria, which is just an example of how pretty much the marriages were just determined by what was politically advantageous to Maria Theresa at the time. Unfortunately for Isabella, after she gave birth to a daughter, she died in 1763. Now, after the death of Francis Stephen, I, I mentioned this, uh, Joseph became her co-ruler in September of 1765, and this was important for Maria Theresa because Joseph was able to help her with the administration of her considerable <laughs> land holdings. And the relationship between Maria Theresa wasn't without warmth. I know that I just painted her as being kind of crazy and a controlling mom there, but it was also very complicated and their personalities clashed quite a bit. Now, uh, Joseph was quickly remarried, not super because he wanted to but there was a lot of pressure on him like hey you got to get a male heir you got to get a male heir so he was married again and on Maria Teresa's 50th birthday she contracted smallpox and also her new daughter-in-law Maria Josessa of Bavaria who is now the wife of uh now Emperor Joseph II and they both had smallpox, and Maria Theresa survived, but the young empress did not. After the death of the young empress, Maria Theresa insisted after she recovered that everyone has to go play, pray next to the crypt of the young empress who just died. And her whole family was with her, and one of her daughters ended up actually catching smallpox, or while well, she displayed symptoms of smallpox two days later, 
and she ended up dying. And Maria Teresa blamed herself for the rest of her life for this daughter's death, even though historians have looked at it, it's been pretty much proven that because of extended incubation time, she probably had already contracted smallpox. It didn't really have anything to do with the fact that she was praying next to the tomb. But Maria Teresa didn't benefit from modern science like we do, and she very much was, she very much blamed herself for this. Now, unfortunately, the daughter who had died had already been contracted to King Ferdinand IV of Naples. And because she had died, Maria Teresa had to quickly turn around and send one of her other daughters in, able to marry the king of Naples because he doesn't care. Just send a daughter of Widesen. So, so Maria Carolina was sent to replace the daughter who had just died. After the marriage with Naples was determined, there was another opportunity for a marriage with France, which leads us to the thing that a lot of us know Maria Teresa for, and that is being the mother of Marie Antoinette. Now, as we had seen previously, they had tried to set up a marriage with the Princess of Parma for her son and heir, Joseph, but after she had died, that marriage obviously... <laughs> was no longer in place, and so there was another opportunity to really solidify this alliance. And because one of her daughters had also just sent, been sent to Naples to be married, this meant that she really only had one more option to solidify this alliance with friends, France, and that was her youngest daughter, Maria Antonia. Maria Antonia had famously gotten away with not really being educated for the majority of her childhood, partly because she just wasn't really interested in it, and partly because she was the youngest daughter, so no one was really paying much attention to her anyways. Well, when this opportunity to be married to the Dauphine of France, which basically just means the heir of the French throne, Maria Theresa started to take a good look at her youngest daughter and realized that she had very much not been educated at all, which meant that Maria Antonia was now subjected to the most intense princess training that could possibly happen, trying to get her ready before she was sent off to France. In April of 1770, Maria Antonia was married to the Dauphine of France, Louis, by proxy in Vienna, and then she was sent on her way to France itself. Now, Maria Theresa constantly wrote to Maria Antonia, now called Marie Antoinette, the French version of her name, and in these letters, she often reproached Marie Antoinette for her laziness, for being frivolous, and often scolding her for failing to conceive a child, something she would not do for the first seven years of her marriage. Now, Maria Theresa wasn't uniquely harsh to Marie Antoinette. She was actually known for being very harsh throughout their lives, which I think that I alluded to before. And the only child who did not receive the constant scolding of Maria Theresa was her favorite, Maria Christina, who enjoyed her mother's complete confidence. Though Maria Christina was never able to produce any surviving children, which Maria Theresa actually really liked her grandchildren, and so this was kind of a big blow. But um, just to wrap this up here, because I don't think we'll mention it again, this doesn't happen until after the death of Maria Theresa. Marie Antoinette ends up being executed during the French Revolution, and so she 
she has this very quick, very crazy rain and the history chicks do an amazing uh coverage of Marie Antoinette she was actually their very first person that they covered and then they redid her in a two-part series a little bit later so I am going to find a link to those episodes and put them up in case you want to learn more about Marie Antoinette and then they talk about Maria Teresa a little bit in that episode as well just because she is Marie Antoinette's mom and so when they're talking about her early life they speak a little bit about Maria Teresa as well so I will be sure to add that in. Other than war and arranging marriages, what did Maria Teresa do with her reign? Now for ease of digestion, uh, so to speak, I'm going to break this up into more, um, I'm just going to break this up by category and kind of go through it, what she accomplished during her reign. So first let's talk about religion. Maria Theresa, like all other members of the Habsburg dynasty, was very Roman Catholic, extremely devout, and she didn't buy into this idea of religious tolerance. She thought that the only way to have peace in a realm was by having religious unity and wanted to have a state church. Some of her contemporaries actually called her bigoted, intolerant, and superstitious, which, ouch, but at the same time, so she was super religious, but at the same time, she did not want Rome or the Pope to tell her what to do. Which in history, up until this point really, the Pope was less of a religious leader, even though he's definitely a religious leader. He was also a king, and she didn't want this guy who had interests of his own telling her what to do. With this in mind, she actually described to this ideology known as Janicism, which the ideas of this ideology were super appealing to her. Basically, they believed that maximum freedom of national churches from Rome was essential to peace, which gave Maria Theresa a theoretical framework for her desire to not let Rome tell her what to do, but still justify her feelings as a very devout Roman Catholic. The next major accomplishment of Maria Theresa was completely overhauling the system that she had inherited. Basically, the bureaucracy that Maria and Theresa found herself in control of was incredibly not efficient. Just so inefficient, it blows the mind. Possibly jaded from all the fighting that she had had been doing, she decided that a standing army was probably a really good idea, and she instituted a standing army of 108,000 men. I don't know why that was so hard for me to say, but moving on. And to pay the bill for this, she actually used the money from the central government and also taxed nobility, which had never been done before up until this point. Popularity was not high on Maria Theresa's list of priorities. And also, at the time that she instituted the Standing Army, the bureaucratic system got a complete overhaul. By 1760, there were only a hundred, or I'm sorry, there were only 10,000 government officials running around, which I know still sounds like a lot, but it's a vast improvement from what they had before. And by 1764, the state revenue had doubled through her attempt to tax the clergy and the nobility, even though it had only been partially successful. 
For example, in the case of Hungary, she was particularly mindful of the fact that she had promised to respect their privileges as a separate kingdom, and the immunity for nobles from taxes was a big part of that, so she was like, all right, Hungary, I'm not going to tax you, but everybody else, cough it up. And then in 1775, for the first time ever in a Habsburg monarchy, they achieved their first balanced budget. By 1780, the Habsburg state revenue reached 50 million golden, which I, I saw this currency bump up a lot, but basically it's a lot of money. And when they first started ruling, they were had a income of like 20 million golden, which I'm not even sure if I'm saying that right. I tried to look into more about this currency, but it seemed really complicated and inflation just, it, it's very complicated. But basically they were doing a really good job and made the system run so much better with a lot of, uh, tipping our hats to Francis Stephen for helping get all of this together. Maria Theresa also overhauled the education system. While Catholic Orthodox thought was still very much taught, she also implemented a curriculum that focused on social responsibility, social discipline, work ethic, and the use of reason rather than merely just memorizing things, which is the way a lot of teaching was done back then. Uh, she also wanted children of both genders and from ages 6 to 12 to be required to attend school, even though at the time a lot of people were like, uh, no, I actually need my children to help me in the field, so she got some pushback on this, but I think the attempt <laughs> was nice at least. Maybe not a clear understanding of the way the poorest people were living in her kingdom, but then again, what ruler at this time was good at that? Uh, no one. That's why the French Revolution happened. Moving on. So although the idea had merit, the reforms were not super successful. And in some parts of Austria, half the population was illiterate well into the 19th century. And then not so good a legacy that Maria Theresa left was censorship. Maria Theresa limited the books that could be read, particularly those that were critical of the Catholic Church. And... I mean, a lot of people couldn't read anyways, but it's still not great, and that's something that Maria Theresa is known for as well. Over time, ruling with her son became quite difficult. I've kind of briefly mentioned the difficulties that they had in their relationship, but adding power and trying to run a country to that just even more so made it difficult for them. In a letter that she had written to one of Joseph's friends, she complained, He avoids me. I'm the only person in his way, and I am an obstruction and a burden. Abdication alone can remedy matters. So Maria Theresa, actually after the death of her husband and a few years into ruling with her son, actually considered abdicating the throne and just letting France, uh, letting Joseph have control. However, after her smallpox incident, um, after contracting smallpox, she decided that God had decided since she survived that that she was supposed to remain on the throne, and she decided not to ultimately abdicate. Joseph himself actually threatened to resign as co-regent and emperor, but he too was convinced, okay, no, I shouldn't do that, and this really hard dynamic just continued between the two of them. 
It's unlikely after she had smallpox that Maria Teresa's health ever actually fully recovered. You know, she often suffered from shortness of breath, fatigue, she had coughing and insomnia, and later she developed ed edema. And I had to Google this because I was pretty sure I knew what this word meant, but I had to double check. And basically what that is, is your limbs start to become swollen with fluid and it doesn't go down. And it's basically really painful and it really hinders your movement. In November of 1780, Maria Teresa fell ill. Even though Joseph, her son, was pretty confident that she was going to recover, it became clear after a few days that she was gravely ill and she received her last rites. On the 28th of November, the doctor told her that her time had come, and a day later, surrounded by her remaining children, she died. Her longtime rival, Frederick the Great, on hearing of her death, said that she had honored her throne and her sex, and though he had fought against her in three wars, he never considered her his enemy. Which makes us feel a little bad for all that evil man talk, but he also started three wars, so that was very kind of him. <laughs> but that is a complicated relationship to say the least. Compared to other Habsburgs, Maria Theresa's 40 years of power were considered to be very successful. Her reforms had transformed the empire into a modern state with significant international standing. She was called the most human of the Habsburgs. However, not all of her press was <laughs> was glowingly positive. Uh, one historian, a history professor in, I think, Austria, because it was very hard to look him up because none of it was in English, but his name is Karl, and I'm just going to... I'm just going to spell his last name because I don't want to say it wrong. It's V-O-C-E-L-K-A. He stated that, taken as a whole, the reforms of Maria Theresa appear more absolutist and centrist than enlightened, even if one must admit that the influence of enlightened ideas is visible to a certain degree. Her body is now buried in the imperial crypt in Vienna next to her husband in a coffin she had inscribed during her lifetime. After her death, her son, Joseph, who had been her co-ruler, continued ruling, but died without son, so the throne passed to her now other son, Leopold, his younger brother. According to Austrian historian Robert A. Kahn, Maria Theresa was a monarch of above-average qualifications. However, she is often outshined by her sons, Joseph and Leopold. Kahn asserts that she nevertheless possessed qualities appreciated in a monarch. She was warm-hearted, politically minded, had a firm determination, and a sound perception. Most importantly, she was ready to recognize the mental superiority of some of her advisors and to give way to a superior mind while enjoying support of her ministers, even if their ideas were different from her own. And I think... I think that that's awesome, and I think that when I think of who my ideal boss is, it's someone who appreciates the ideas of others and different ways of thinking and realizes that not one person can have all of the answers. So in a, in a weird way, she's kind of the CEO um, that we would want in a modern day put into this package of a woman who ruled so long ago, which I think is awesome. That's just my thoughts there after that last quote. So as far as sources go, I have 
I don't have that much. I had a really hard time looking for books from Maria Teresa, so I ended up having a lot of web sources that I was using. The one hard copy book that I do have is Maria Teresa by George Upton, and it's from First Rate Publishers. I ordered this off of Amazon, and I was pretty disappointed when I got it because it's really small. And this is the one I actually mentioned where it had that one like example of her going and helping her dad when she was 16, like a bring your, bring your daughter to work day. Uh, that I got from this book, but I didn't find the rest of it super helpful, so I wouldn't bother ordering it if I was you. That's just my own personal, um, that's just my own, own personal take on it. I also think based on some of the writing that this was probably a translation, but I can't say that for sure, so again, not the greatest. Um, I also used uh, uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, had a really good article about Maria Teresa, and then there were a couple of other websites that I found online that were super helpful. And I'll link to a few of them in the show notes on actuallyinterestinghistory.com. I do post um, little articles with each one of the episodes that goes live that just has links and stuff like that. So if you guys are interested in seeing some of the sources or just want to learn more, I will definitely make those available to you. So thank you guys so much for listening to my coverage of Marie Teresa. I actually, I considered just doing Marie Antoinette, who is someone that I know a lot about and I would have been probably a little bit more comfortable talking about, but I have always thought that Marie Teresa sounded really interesting when I was hearing about Marie Antoinette. And I wanted to push myself and cover someone that I didn't know so much about. And I definitely did not have a ton of background about the Holy Roman Empire. So this was a learning experience for me as much as it was for you guys, I think. But I'm really glad that I did it. I'm really glad I have a better understanding of her. And I am sure that eventually I will also cover Marie Antoinette. Don't you worry. So again, thank you guys so much for listening. Bye!